0: Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported Ellie Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and this week I am not joined by my co-host, Medea Ocher, but she has a perfectly good excuse. She had a baby! We at the LARB Radio Hour are thrilled and send all of our warmest wishes and hugs to Medea, Tom, and baby Simone. On this week's show, which was recorded previously, Medea and I are speaking with Hernan Diaz about his latest novel, Trust, which tells a single story from multiple perspectives, or I guess we might call them revisions, that brings into focus both how storytelling itself, as well as the narratives American culture tells about wealth and money, shape and distort our world. Our conversation moves between the traditions of the 19th century American novel, The Vagaries of Capital, and how Diaz put together this nesting doll-like novel. So without further delay, let's get to that conversation. And I have to say today, I am very much missing hearing Medea say, let's do it. We are excited to have Hernan Diaz on the line with us today. Hernan is the author of In the Distance, a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize and the Penn Faulkner Award. His work has appeared in a number of publications, including the Paris Review, Granta, Playboy, and McSweeney's. He is also a recipient of both a Whiting Award and the William Soroyan International Prize, and has been a fellow at the New York Public Library's Cullman Center for Scholars and Writers. He joins us today to talk about his second novel, Trust, which tells the story, or perhaps I should say better, the stories of finance industry titan Andrew Bevel and his relationship with his wife, Mildred. We first meet the couple in their fictionalized counterparts as Benjamin and Helen Rask, the central characters in Bonds, a popular 1920s novel written by Harold Vonner. The story that Truss's opening novel within a novel tells is challenged by an irate Andrew Bevel who sets about writing his own memoir, the ostensibly true tale of his life and marriage with the help of a ghostwriter named Ida Partenza. In the third and fourth sections of Trust, this story is revisited and revised yet again, first by Ida in a sort of memoir of a memoir, and then in the words of Mildred Bevel herself. This multi-layered novel attempts to capture for us not only the ways in which the stories we tell about ourselves and others come to shape our lives, but also how finance and wealth playing here on the double signification of the title trust as both a moral bond we share with others and a financial arrangement, distort and warp our reality. As such, trust is not only a tour de force of genre and storytelling, but a tale deeply resonant with our own moment. Welcome to the show, Ernan. We are thrilled to have
1: you. Hi, Eric and Medea. So nice to be here with you in conversation. I only wish we were in person.
0: And, you know, to kick us off, could you Talk a little bit about how this
1: novel began for you, kind of where it came from. The idea for this book has many sides. I wouldn't say there was only just one source for the idea. Part of it had to do with the context in in which the novel was written. The novel is to a great extent about wealth and to the narratives around wealth and how certain presences around it have been erased. And I was interested in how great fortune has the ability to distort and warp the reality around it and what the consequences of that distortion is. So I think the one of the sources for the idea, aside from this rather abstract answer, was that it seems to me that capital and the myths around capital are one of the great foundational myths of America, of what our identity has become over the last few centuries. And yet, looking at the American canon, there, wasn't, there weren't enough books that, to my mind, dealt with capital in a way that, to me, was interesting. Of course, there are many books that deal with the effects of wealth, you know, luxury manners. There's a very rich tradition about novels' uh, manners class, exploitation. All of this has uh, a long trajectory in American letters. But it's hard to really think of novels that deal with money directly. This to me was productive, sort of this blind spot that I thought I saw. So I think that was a big source of inspiration. Additionally, most of the book was written during the Trump years. And I, Mm -hmm. I would see every day in the newspaper how how reality itself became increasingly commodified, so to speak. It was there for the highest bidder. And we saw this toward the end of the election year, how reality itself, empirical reality, was being contested every day, right? And it's still in progress. And I think there is a great relationship between that and wealth, of course. So I think these are some of the aspects that drew me to the book and also... The stories that are buried underneath the enormous mass and weight of these fortunes. That was something I was very interested in, and how the narratives of wealth are exclusively male, both in historical accounts mm-hmm. and in fiction. The world of wealth is a masculine world, and women have been erased from it. So that was a, yet another blank spot that to me deserved attention.
0: Now, just to follow up, you know, one of the things, obviously, a number of people have drawn comparisons to the first novel that we're presented with, right? So Harold Vonner's Bonds, right? Which is about Benjamin and Helen Rask. And this is what sets up, as we've described, you know, the kind of anger of the real life people that those were meant to represent, which is Jack and Mildred Bevel. But that first novel that you give us inside of your novel, which is Bonds, it feels like, in many ways, an homage to Edith Wharton. But as you're talking about these kind of novels about money, I'm also instantly reminded of how many kind of 19th century novels and early 20th century novels Bonds kind of reminds me of. So this would be people like William Dean Howells' The Rise of Silas Laffam. It would also be Theodore Dreiser's Sister Carrie, which I think is probably still one of my like favorite novels about capitalism. And in many ways, that novel, too, is about the insufficiency of money to guarantee any kind of happiness and the way that money just has to continue to accrete itself, right? Like Carrie becomes her own kind of capitalist infrastructure. I'm struck by what you're saying that you're right. Money in the contemporary novel is usually offered as a given or a backdrop or a kind of, if you think about like Crazy Rich Asians, for example, is what comes immediately to mind. As a kind of glittering ambiance in which one can experience characters, right? But it's not about the money itself. So, can you talk about the difference, both kind of your inspiration with Wharton, but also kind of the difference that you see between the contemporary representation of money and the kind of 19th, early 20th century tradition that you're drawing on, at least in the very beginning of the novel?
1: Oh, dear. Uh, Yes. Okay. That was a question. (laughs) Thank you. And it, I mean, it's a beautiful question because it offers a beautiful sort of map of the history of these issues in the American canon. Since you invited me to start with Edith Wharton, I'll do just that. Of course, Edith Wharton, And Henry James are massive inspirations for the Harold Vanner section. I called him Vanner, but it's a made up name. So you can call him whatever you want. It doesn't (laughs) exist as a a name. In both Edith Wharton and Henry James, money is never made,
2: Mm. money
1: is already there. This is a massively important distinction because in order for you to be able to think about capital, you have to think about labor because capital comes from the surplus of appropriation of labor. But if money is already there, if there is effectively no labor, I would only claim that the laborers in James and Wharton are artists. That is a whole different conversation sure, and a fascinating one at that, but I think it exceeds probably the scope of this chat. But for the most part, and of course we could think of exceptions, but for the most part in this world there is no work, there is no labor. So I would say that money is more akin to treasure, you know, something that is there, given, Mm. than capital, something, again, that is made. If you read Edith Wharton's memoir called A Backward Glance, a title she borrowed from Walt Whitman, everywhere you see that work is shunned upon by this sort of blue-blooded set. So is art, by the way, but again, (laughs) that's for another day. And Wharton also mentioned that Henry James, for all his, you know, the detailed, minute, accurate picture he gave of the society of his time, was unable to deal with finance and with capital. I think she's right. So I would say there is a priggishness in that world around money that is, of course, very puritanical. And paradoxically, it's that same sort of puritanical, Calvinistic spirit that also puts an enormous emphasis on the accumulation of wealth as a sort of a manifestation of the rewards that will come in in the next, you know, in the afterlife. So while there is a mystical connection between money and redemption, it is also true that money is taboo. So this to me already is something that I'm very interested in because it's so twisted, right? (laughs) So I think that sort of deals, I hope, to some extent with your Wharton question I should also add that when I was talking about manners, I was, of course, thinking about Wharton and James and how money creates a certain set of social protocols around itself. Right. And ways in which people react and distance and layers of mediation between people. But the source of all of this, which, again, is money, always goes unmentioned. You mentioned William Dean Howell, Theodore Dreiser. I don't think William Dean Howell is totally belongs in the world that I am interested in. I'm not in or that this novel is interested in. It's not about the self-made man. I use man very deliberately here. Sure. It's not about that. It's about pure, straight-up privilege. It's Mm. not the story of social ascent. It's about privilege. And then you mentioned also Theodore Dreiser. To me, the Dreiser novels that were important were the three books in the Trilogy of Desire, beginning with The Financier, then The Titan, and the third one. The title escapes me at this moment, but it was written 35 years after the first installment of the trilogy. And here's an interesting thing. The only volume in this trilogy that is in print with Penguin Classics is The Financier. The other two volumes are completely out of print. I bought them like secondhand for Five bucks each. The Stoic. Nobody cares. Is the third one. The Stoic. Thank you. The Stoic. Yes. Thank you very much. Which is late. I I would say it's like written in the mid-40s. And I think it's relevant that these books are out of print. I think that says something about what we do with our archive. By we, I mean the United States. And these novels are... I can't say that I like them, to be honest. But they do deal with finance in a way that to me is very interesting. Like it's not a book that I want to revisit. There is something there that to me is very, very important. I would add to my personal canon in this kind of timeframe that we're considering right now, I would add Upton Sinclair. And in Mm. particular, a 1908, I think, novel called The Money Changers whose villain is blatantly based on John Pierpont Morgan. And again, this is a novel that deals with capital in a way that to me is very fascinating. Although, again, I can't say that I enjoyed it as a piece of (laughs) literature stylistically or I didn't. I have to be honest here. But I admire its drive. I should also say that in none of these books, women play any role whatsoever aside Mm -hmm. from the obvious pre-assigned roles of wives or secretaries or victims, you know, I found that those are the three only positions that they are allowed in these narratives. And then to, I think, conclude with your question, and as you see, my answer is, (laughs) I think is long enough for the length (laughs) of the question or proportional. You asked me a little bit about sort of, current representations of money in literature, I'm always a little hesitant like to critique other fellow writers, but I would say, living writers, that is, I would say that in general, like in all of these novels, up to the present, to my mind, one of the main issues they all have is that they become bedazzled by the very thing they set out to critique. Here's a novel that will denounce, whatever, novel X, that will denounce the excess, the inequality, the waste of this world of luxury and privilege. But what I usually see happening in those novels is that they become absolutely mesmerized, bedazzled and drawn and to that very world and end up fetishizing it in, in a way that's totally counterproductive. I don't know if this makes sense, but to me, it's a pretty consistent pattern. That also
0: seems very much in keeping, even though we're talking about much broader forms of literature with that kind of Puritan tradition of like the thing that is taboo also sometimes accretes to itself a kind of excitement or like an allure. The thing that you're critiquing and saying is terrible gets transformed, as you're saying, into the object of ultimate
1: desire. Oh, I think that's totally right. I hadn't made that leap, you know, from the thing that I said to the one you said, <laughs> but I think it's, it is the natural leap to make, no doubt, yes. But since we're talking about sort of the more contemporary novels, I think there is a difference between that sort of puritanical repression slash fascination mm-hmm. to whatever happens after Ronald Reagan, for example, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. world of complete excess. I think there is a difference between a certain kind of waspy representation of wealth to the nouveau riche representation of wealth after the 80s. You know, yeah. there is something that happens there that is also very interesting, but there is a difference in tenor and tone, I think, after those years.
3: It seems like there's something tricky, though, in terms of like depicting the actual gathering of wealth. And I feel like this book does it well in that it's abstract in a way that I who has no mind for money, (laughs) for money or numbers. That's why I'm here. I'd be doing something else if I did and had no moral compass too. I think I'd have to lack that. But is that there's like a certain abstraction to it and that money creates more money. And it seems to me really hard to narrativize that kind of accretion of wealth. So I wonder how you thought about that and how how to approach the oddity of the numbers that exist in a particular financial sphere, but that it's not literally cash exchanging hands, you know?
1: The abstraction of money for me was very much at the core of this project. And this is why I'm not, the book is not about industrialists, you know, it's not people who make goods or commodities, or provide services and then sell them. It's about, and sorry, it's a little gross to quote the book, but I will. It's sort of the incestuous genealogies of money. It says at at some point, sort of money begetting money, begetting money. That to me was very interesting. As to quote you back to yourself, the abstraction of a certain kind of speculative wealth was for me very interesting. And then suddenly it was like, oh, I also decided, like I was reading a lot for the book. I studied a lot because, like you, I don't come. I have a graduate degree in comp lit. This is, you know, <laughs> I can't imagine anything more removed from the banking world. So, you know, it it was the steep curve to learn about monetary history, history of the markets, and just financial instruments. And what I quickly discovered as I was reading toward this book was that. There is an esoteric nature to this discourse that is completely intentional to the financial kind of lingo. And I wanted to provide, in a very controlled way, was the reader to that. I wanted a certain degree of discomfort when facing sort of this financial kind of vernacular, because I think it's a rhetorical power play on the part of finance writers or analysts or however you want to call them. I think it's a desired effect to increase this distance and to give the impression that these operations are well beyond the comprehension of the layperson. I think that is the ultimate desired effect. I wanted to play with that a little bit and to explore what that meant. So I included that, again, in a very controlled and brief way in the novel. I think that was another way of dealing with it. And lastly, I think Big fortunes, as you said, these overwhelming, disproportionate fortunes are highly mediated. This was also a discovery that I made. It's sort of a duh moment, but I really felt it as I was reading about these great American fortunes. So it also occurred to me that I couldn't write about a great fortune from one single point of view because a fortune contains multitudes. Hmm. So the book had to be choral for that reason to begin with. And I think that adds, hopefully, I mean, who knows? (laughs) I would hope that this choral structure of the book to a certain extent mimics the sort of multitudinous quality of a fortune.
0: You are listening to the Larb Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Hernan Diaz, author of Trust, We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation.
3: We have Celia Paul on the line with us today. Her new book is called Letters to Gwen John, and Celia is joining us to give us a book recommendation. Celia, what book are you going to recommend?
2: I'm going to recommend The Complete Letters of Vincent van Gogh.
3: You write about a lot of the letters in this book, actually. Can you tell us a little bit about what drew you to that collection? Well, I think the letters, I think Vincent was a very great
2: writer. Can I read something from one of the letters to give an idea? Please. Of, yes. This is one, a letter he wrote to his, I mean, all the important letters are to his brother, Theo. And he says, If now you can forgive a man for making a thorough study of pictures, admit also that the love of books is as sacred as the love of Rembrandt. I even think the two complement each other. My God, how beautiful Shakespeare is. Who is mysterious like him? His language and style can indeed be compared to an artist's brush quivering with fever and emotion. But one must learn to read just as one must learn to see and learn to live. And I think the way that Vincent uses language is very painterly. You go on the journey with him from a young man to when he killed himself at age 37, and you go through the times of finding himself, losing himself, And the distress of his own loneliness and his commitment to his art in an unforgettable way.
3: Do you have a favourite work of his that you would recommend listeners take a closer look at?
2: I love so many of his paintings. It's difficult to say, but I do love his blossom trees very Mm. particularly. There's one which I think he, he did after his his great friend Mauve died, and it's in memory of Mauve. And it's I think it's a peach blossom tree. I suppose it's beyond description. It's it's beautiful. It's beyond beautiful.
3: Well, Celia Paul, thank you so much for that recommendation. Will you tell us the title of the of the book again and the author, I suppose?
2: The complete letters of Vincent Van Gogh. I'm pronouncing Van Gogh in the English way. (laughs) And
3: yeah. Thank you so much, Celia, for calling. Thank you. We've been speaking with Celia Paul. Her new book is called Letters to Gwen John.
0: Now, back to our conversation with Hernan Diaz, author of Trust.
3: The book is broken up into different um, forms. And I was curious about that. So did that gives you or it gave you, you feel some kind of purchase into talking about this fortune that we initially know as the Rask fortune, later as the Bevel fortune, in different ways. And part of it also is that these different accounts mm, lead without giving anything away um lead the reader into questioning some of the things that we might have taken for granted earlier. So I was curious about that structure. How did you work how did you work that out um as to like when to question what?
1: Right. That was that was the big compositional formal question of yeah. the book. I mean you you really you you nailed it. That 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 is that was the the <laughs> Uh, the torturing question during during the, the process of writing the book, uh, what to reveal and what and how. Um, so go, going back to the beginning of our conversation, uh, a thing about great wealth is that we have all sort of as a, as a culture, I mean, uh, the three of us uh, become enamored with with this uh, notion of the self made man, you know, who mm-hmm. pulls himself up by his bootstraps and through hard work and toil, uh, you know, uh, amasses a great fortune. Uh, it's 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 uh, that's one of the great American narratives. And again, I use man deliberately. And the the thing is, uh, these supposedly great men. Stand on the shoulder uh, shoulders of of multitudes that have been completely erased from this narrative, from the narrative of, of their ascent, and 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 that's exactly what I wanted to look at. I wanted to sort of try to give voice to those who had been usually gagged, you know, in these yeah. in these in these narratives. So, and I think th- this also brings us to the to the title of the book, which is which is trust. And and part of it, of course, trust has a financial dimension, you know, it's a financial term. And um, but it also it's also uh it has an emotional or an experiential dimension as well. You know, I wanted for the reader to 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 experience different voices, to try to question the ownership of, of these voices, to try to think of what of how each one of these voices comes with listening to them or reading them. I think every text does this. we there is there is a there is a contractual nature to reading. and look how the financial sort of lexicon starts sort of creeping in. But I think we do establish or enter into a contract each time we read anything. Uh, and for the most part, we don't question that contract. Uh, or those contracts. and i and and to me, the experience of fleeting trust involves having the reader questioning those contracts at all at all times. And he, hopefully each section will make the reader wonder about the previous one and 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 what assumptions were taking for granted, you know?
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
1: well, that's one of the, you know, what what struck me immediately, and
0: this is probably my, Own weird thing as like a a journalism somebody with like a journalism background who was forced to watch um, Rashomon in college um, for this exact kind of reason is that it's a lot a, a huge part of the book or I guess the central question as you're saying is kind of like both how we come to to know ourselves and then in another way how we come to articulate or who gets to articulate that version of the self to like a public. And, you know, obviously in Rashomon, you have a murder and three different people see the murder differently and somewhere between them is the truth. And it strikes me that, again, uh, uh, giving obeisance to Medea, not wanting to spoil anything, trying to figure out the truth about these people, about the world in which they circulate and about whose voices have been silenced or misrepresented is the project of all three portions of the novel right? So can you talk a little bit, I mean, this is also a a fundamental representational problem of fiction, right? Like this is what realism is actually trying to give us, like the realist novel is trying to give us in its most pure sense, quote unquote, is trying to give us the world as it actually is, but to do such is impossible. And so I'm just curious how you think about that, both having just written a novel that is self-consciously constructed in these ways to kind of what gets concealed, what gets revealed, but also just as a writer who has to make choices about perspective and, you know, wh- where the truth of the story
1: is. It's a, it's a complicated question to, to answer. I, I I think I have an answer, but, and it has to do in a way to inverting the terms of the question to me. Okay, uh, What I, um, what I discovered in the process of writing the book, I didn't come to the book with this discovery or knowledge or whatever you want to call it. It, it was a result of the process. Was that um, I wasn't too interested in, I, I mean, I am interested, but the, the, my main concern was not sort of my nieces or how the novel can right. can adu- adequately Mirror and copy or represent the world. You know, uh, you mentioned um, the realist novel, and uh, rather, my question was: How can narratives affect and change and distort the world and reshape the world? So yes. it's it's the exact opposite. It's not. Oh, how can the story match? referential reality as closely as possible. No, the question is rather, how can referential reality adapt itself to this narrative? Oh, I love that. Yeah, that is the question of the book. And I think it's also, of course, this can sound like monstrous and and cynical to a certain extent, but it it, it is also a testimony to the power of the word and the power of literature, you know, which is, I feel not in a subservient relationship to that referential reality but a part of it mm. <laughs> and therefore has has a certain amount of agency within the let's use it for convenience sake the real world right but of course in the course of trust the novel this power that literature has of effectively intervening into the world is is co-opted for highly ideological and questionable <laughs> reasons <laughs> that, that that happens as well in the novel but but that would be my response sort of to to try to move away from from this um, um, specular uh, relationship this uh, between between literature and life in favor of uh, a, a more um, a more active uh, uh, notion of literature as uh, as 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 a discourse able to to shift uh, reality itself. Yeah.
3: So your first book in the distance partly dealt with a uh, a sort of foundational American myth. This one seems to tread similar ground, at least in terms of that its Americanness and and I, I was curious what draws you to that i mean there's there's like well, what about the sort of and the maybe it's the the weirdness of 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 american found foundational stories but what is it about these this sort of land that you find interesting
1: <laughs> uh well um I don't have like a, a clear answer to that. I ask myself the same question uh, often. I am I am an American by choice. I wasn't I wasn't born here, but I've by now spent most of my life here. I think this is my twenty third year in in the United States. So it's you know it's a long it's a long it's most of my life effectively. Look, I don't know. To me, maybe it has to do with the fact that my first. Approach to the United States. My first contact with the United States was, as many foreigner foreigners, uh, was through fiction. Like I, I would read American novels, I would uh, mm. watch American films, I would read American comics, I would listen to American lyrics, you know, in 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 American songs. So maybe that's why I'm interested in in the fictional in the fictions that America writes about itself for itself. Mm. I also think, and this I feel this is a pretty objective kind of statement. I also feel that the United States has like a, a fictional engine at its core. It's very welcoming to fiction. The the proliferation of narratives around this country is kind of bananas that come from the United States itself. Like I don't think that happens in Belgium or in Uruguay, you know, (laughs) Uh (laughs) you you, you know what I'm saying? Sure. They have, they have their own history and I'm sure it's also mythological to enormous extents, but this obsession of inventing this kind of massive narrative around, you know, uh, the few centuries since this country was occupied to me is like uh, mind boggling and fascinating. Uh, Mm -hmm. So maybe, 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 maybe that's why, maybe that's why. Uh, But, but also I think, I think I'm interested in these foundational myths and, and and in these highly ossified uh, fossilized historical moments or, or, or cultural moments or whatever you want to call them, you know, because, because I feel like they've been, they've been hardened, they've been hardened by ideology. Right, over the course of decades or centuries. And I and I think there is always work to be done there. I'm really interested in these highly petrified narratives and, and to mess with them.
3: So yeah, let's talk a little bit about you've you've mentioned this several times, and and it's a, it's a huge part of this novel, but um the ways in which, as as you mentioned, women were systematically almost completely um erased from, from the kinds of narratives that that you mentioned about capital, about money, about ascent. Um, And I think this book, uh, again, I don't want to sort of give away how it ends. but um, So I'm trying to be very careful here. But uh, it it does a lot of work in in sort of undoing that and rewriting the narrative sort of completely. Um, And so I want to talk to you a little bit about that. Why did you take that on and what was your thinking in terms of how to do it?
1: Well, yes, this is definitely at the core of the book. Uh, The the main protagonists, I mean, you're led to think that the protagonist is this this sort of uh, tycoon, uh, this man. uh, And it is very much not the case. The the two protagonists of the book are uh, his wife and a young woman uh, who is the daughter of an italian um anarchist an immigrant who lives in who lives in brooklyn and i should also say that that immigration plays plays a big part in the book Mm. but um i think i mentioned before that uh that women have been erased from from narratives of, of accumulation and wealth or been assigned uh these very stereotypical places of um wife and secretary so i thought I would take exactly those two places: wife and secretary. So I thought I would take these two these two roles: wife and secretary, and and subvert them. Uh, it's hard to talk about what happens with these two characters without giving away the absolute main um, plot twists. But um, uh, uh, I would say that. Uh, one of the great revelations in the book has to do around voice: who is speaking, mm-hmm. who who has been denied a voice, and who reclaims a voice. This is this is one of the main elements, uh, far more than plot, even perhaps in in the book. And I think it becomes obvious once once you read the book. Um, and uh, I did a lot of research uh, for the book, and and actually read. Diaries and journals kept by oh interesting. Uh, yes, kept by wives of uh, financiers in in this in this time period and and socialites uh, of this time period. And it was shocking and 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 really heartbreaking and crushing to see sort of the the suffocation and boredom. And waste of these lives, you know, uh, uh, of these women who had been just cornered into into this this completely uh, 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 claustrophobic place. Uh, and this is something that that the novel dwells on uh, a lot. Uh, as far as the young secretary, um, uh, it's it's tremendously important what happens in the United States in the twenties and thirties with women entering. White collar labor force, and for the first time, being able to aspire to sort of a, a middle class uh, status, you know, without marrying into it. Um, but uh, uh, my protagonist also sort of uh, 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 <laughs> manages to sort of steer away from from that predictable path. Uh, she, she, she actually becomes a very successful writer, and and again, I feel her voice is is does a lot of work in in the book
3: hernan thank you so much for for joining us
1: thank you so much thank you for incredible questions and uh it's this conversation has been just a pleasure thank you thank you
3: we've been speaking with hernan diaz his new book is called trust thanks for listening to the larb radio hour Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out, and we'd love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is William Broaden. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogene Teasley-Bladen.